G'day, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast. My name's Pete Liston. I'm your host, and I've been really looking forward to this one because I want to uh, unpick and have a bit of a scratch around ethics and what the right thing to do. Um, when is, you know, how do we actually, you know, put our moral compass, set it in the right direction and you know, have that set the pathway on where we're going. And today I'm speaking to a good friend of mine, a veteran Maslik. Um, mate, how are you today? G'day, mate. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm good. So um, Maz, Maz and I, yeah, that's, uh, that's right. Served, yeah, we served together in the military. Um, he's an entrepreneur. He's got an amazing story of um, coming to Australia, why he served the military here after the military. I know he spent some time back in Sarajevo, gym freak, um, you know, CrossFit guy, gym owner, but now he's back in Australia, still serving in the military, currently doing a, a CDO fellowship and research study on military ethics and also studying a PhD. So Maz, how are you going today, mate? Good, mate. How are you going, Pete? Thanks for having me, firstly. Uh, it's a pleasure, a pleasure. Um, it's always so, odd being on this side of the microphone. <laughs> I know, I know. So, hey, just a quick plug. What's, uh, let's let's plug the Maz podcast. Well, I mean, it's well, it, it, the voices of war, right? So uh, that's that's certainly one big aspect of my current endeavors. Uh, so I host a show, uh, much like you do, uh, that seeks to, I guess, unpack uh, or, or, or seeks to give voice to those who are otherwise not often heard, uh, mm. but have some experience or understanding of war. Uh, and that's merely to scratch below the, what I often call the simple narratives of war, right? The black and white narratives that dominate our mainstream and even social media. And I, I always start these episodes with why did you get to the army? Tell, tell, me, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Um, how did you get to Australia? A bit of that, bit of, you know, it, it's a story in itself. Mm. Um, and how did you end up in the military? Uh, I mean, I'll try to keep it as short as possible because it is a long-winded story. So I was born and born and raised in Bosnia and Sarajevo, as you alluded to, um, uh, which is where I went back to ultimately uh, for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it, it was at the age of 10 that the peace I'd enjoyed up, up until then, I guess, seized uh, with the siege of Sarajevo, which many of your listeners will be probably familiar with of the early 90s or the dissolution of Yugoslavia. Uh, and then, of course, the war in Bosnia, which... Um, you know, lasted for, you know, three and a half, four years. So I was lucky that I only stayed in Syria for a couple of months. My brother and I managed to flee uh, on the second last UN convoy to ever leave the city. Um, Dad, as a fighting age male, had to stay behind uh, because with our surname, Maslik, uh, which is, you know, somewhere, you know, uh, culturally, ethnically Muslim, somewhere in the background, uh, as much as my family hasn't been religious for at least three generations that we know of, um, had my dad tried to leave with that surname, he would have been killed at the first checkpoint or dragged away into one of the concentration camps that were popping up around the country. Uh, so my brother and I settled in Germany for three and a half years as refugees, uh, which in itself was, a, was an interesting experience, but uh, it certainly gave me some unique insights into uh, the life of those who are not fortunate uh, to, uh, you know, or, or life of those who are unfortunate uh, to have to flee uh, their country, uh, and the number of those is growing. Obviously, you know, as we speak right now, uh, not least from Ukraine, but uh, many other parts of the world. Um, so I was again lucky uh, that my dad survived. He joined us in Germany. We then migrated to Australia as skilled migrants. Both parents are highly uh, skilled. Dad's an engineer. Mum's a physics professor. Uh, so sought after uh, industries. And again, you know, I count myself as lucky that they had those professions, which afforded us a new life in a country like Australia. Uh, and you know, for anybody who's ventured beyond the shores of this continent slash country, uh, I'm sure they recognize quickly uh, as the wheels touch down back in uh, on home soil, how lucky we really are over here. Yeah. Um, but why did I join the army? Uh, I mean, truth be told, I was, you know, from three years of age, I used to walk around uh, introducing myself as veteran Maslik soldier. So I've always had an affinity for the uniform. Um, you know, I was, uh, I loved the idea of service. Uh, there's the noble or there's a nobility to this profession uh, that's deeply infused, I guess, uh, as, as we'll come talk about it as well, is, is with the ethics of the profession, uh, is helping those who can't help themselves. Uh, and I think my experiences in Bosnia, I guess, solidified that opinion or that view uh, of that profession because I've been helped by a number of foreign soldiers uh, as we departed Sarajevo. Uh, and I know my dad was also helped 
by a number of foreigners throughout his experience of that war. Um, so, you know, it was really, there was really no question that I would join. Uh, it was just a matter of when uh, rather than if. Uh, and yeah, I was fortunate then to join uh, in 2004 and meet people like yourself and, uh, and many of our other peers. Mate, I just don't want to just gloss over this whole, um, how you left Bosnia piece. How old were you and your brother in Germany and were you by yourselves? So I was 10 and brother was 13. So he's three years older than me. Um, we were by ourselves as in uh, mum was with us, but the three of us were by ourselves. Uh, we actually left Sarajevo um, in a, with, with my aunt, uncle and two cousins. Uh, so we were the, the seven of us were piled into a V-dub Golf 3 Series. And for anybody uh, who knows anything of those cars knows that there's, a, <laughs> there's a, not a lot of space uh, in those cars. Uh, but uh, the way it was kind of uh, sold to the multiple checkpoints that we had to pass by the various warring factions and paramilitaries and uh, et cetera, uh, was that uh, it was actually my uncle who, who has a Serb name, right, which is the only reason he was allowed to leave, uh, despite the fact that he was um, questioned a number of times as to when he's going to come back to defend the homeland uh, by various Serb forces that we met along the way. But it was actually my mum that was supposedly his wife and the rest of us were kids because uh, my aunt, my mum's sister, uh, was rather youngish looking. Uh, so there was, you know, five of us piled, uh, piled on in the back, uh, supposedly all as kids uh, of these two adults uh, at the front, uh, which was uh, an anecdote that we often laughed at uh, in the years subsequent. Uh, but think about thinking about it now. I mean, that's, you know, that's survival. You just go and do what you have to. Uh, and despite the fact that this was a UN-sanctioned convoy, we were shot at, as in the convoy was shot at. Uh, there were people dragged away from the convoy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't at all uh, uh, a safe exit or a safe passage, uh, as one might have believed, uh, just because of the UN association. It's really, again, I'll come back to a bit of your point about, I guess, some of the naivety of being uh, just a regular Australian growing up in a regular town is we've just got no idea about, you know, the average Australian would have no idea about these experiences. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, one of the things for me is, um, you know, without getting down too much of a rabbit hole, you know, with the uh, atrocious situation about why people come on boats and this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. would you really put your family into that situation uh, unless there was something critical and yeah. man, just without going into too much of a tangent, um, what's it saying a national anthem, you know, with boundless planes to share, like God, mm -hmm. we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do a bit more sharing. I mean, just a, just a, just a short comment on that. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's, you know, I've, I've been rather vocal on that point as well. I mean, the problem is with Australia, it's been a political hot potato, uh, you know, the couple of thousand illegal immigrants, let's call them that, um, trying to find asylum. But then you look at countries like Germany who took a hundred thousand people, in the first hit of the Balkan War, Sweden, who took 60,000. Uh, and, you know, these people ultimately ended up boosting the economy because yeah. people who flee their circumstances and are then welcomed somewhere, you know, believe work it or not, hard. they actually work hard and want to pay they back. Uh, yeah, exactly. And on that note, I was, um, I know you've, you've got a strong connection to Turkey and I was mm -hmm. in Istanbul, yeah. sorry, Tur Turkey 8. And I yeah, was in yeah. Istanbul uh, a couple of months ago. And talking to some of the uh, the people in Istanbul, I think there was like a million extra uh, refugees from mm. Syria. Just well, there are three million sitting on the border right now, with with, yeah. with basically with Europe, right? And, and these are these are numbers we just can't like even exactly. fathom in Australia. Exactly. You know, you, we go down to uh, you know Sydney Harbour on New Year's Eve, and the fact there's two hundred thousand people there it feels like a bit of a crush, you know, yeah. Yeah. mate. Um, yeah, exactly. We could digress. We could digress down this path. All day. <laughs> let's, let's let's see where the rabbit holes go. I'm not. I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not scared to go down a few. But mate, <laughs> you've you've gone into the uh, into the military, and it just seems like a natural progression that you went into intelligence corps. Mm -hmm. um, what's life like as an intelligence officer? Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. I guess it de depends on what uh, what kind of intelligence officer you are. Right, because there's obviously we're all trained to be, you know, your 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 S two type, your your uh, battalion uh, S two, uh, brigade S two, etc. That I guess collates information to brief a given commander uh, on the battle space. Right, so forewarned, forearmed. Uh, it's understanding what uh, the enemy, whoever that enemy might be, uh, or even uh, civilians, non-combatants in an area, what they might 
do, uh, given our presence in a particular area of operations. Uh, that's your kind of bread and butter as an intelligence officer. But for me, I've never done that job. As much as I'm an intelligence officer, uh, I've never gone down the mainstream intelligence path. I specialized fairly early on in my intelligence career, uh, and I focused on uh, human intelligence or source operations, uh, which, again, for those who are not familiar, is basically cultivating uh, relationships of trust with those who you know, might have information of uh, utility for uh, the commander in uh, winning that battle or the war. Uh, you know, in short, it's finding spies, basically, but uh, that's the long-winded way to say it. Cultivating trust sounds like, uh, you know, a somewhat nefarious, if that's even the right term, use of how we, what we would do with that trust once we've actually cultivated and sown the seeds and, and mm. reaped the rewards out of it. Mm. And I guess this is where some of the things that I want to unpack in this conversation, mm. you know, bringing it back to, you know, military mindset for business is understanding the own, our own intelligence space in business, you know, and mm. what, mm-hmm what we look at and how we look at our competitors and what, and what other people in other stakeholders are doing before we get there. Um, tell us about some of your roles that you actually did in this human space. Have you got any um, stories that you're willing to share about, you know, different, you know, understanding that there are security clearances and all of that mm, about mm, different experiences that you've had in that role? Uh, I mean, the, the, the things that are, that are obviously, you know, out in the public domain, uh, is is deployments to Afghanistan, uh, and, and you know that's where we had a, a significant footprint uh, as a capability. And I was one of the officers who deployed in charge of uh, a field human team. Uh, and of course, the team itself was tasked with, uh, you know, you know, cultivating that access and trust uh, with those individuals who uh, might be able to support, uh, you know, our or answer our information requirements uh, to inform decisions made in the battle space. Um, and that's, uh, that's, without a doubt, a pinnacle and highlight of my career. Uh, apart from that, I've been involved in, uh, in some other, some other uh, roles uh, 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 that are associated uh, with uh, human intelligence, uh, but mainly in training uh, and uh, in preparing guys to go overseas. Uh, which is something I still do even today. I still teach uh, at some of our specialist intelligence uh, collection courses uh, with a particular focus on interpersonal and intercultural communication and, and weaving the idea of ethics. Uh, because, of course, as, as anybody listening can imagine, the entire industry of running you know, spies uh, is hugely ethically uh, challenging and difficult to digest, I guess, because, mm. you know, as... Many have argued before me, the profession in itself is ultimately unethical in many ways uh, because you're using people uh, ultimately, you know, cultivating trust, as we discussed before, uh, which feels real, but uh, generally is not, you know, in order to get information from them. Um, So uh, you have to be ultimately very, very careful with how how those skill sets and how those and, and the right personalities that are in those types of uh, capabilities, uh, who are able to walk that fine line of uh, you know what's okay and what's not. Well, man, the first thing I can think of is I wish we had a campsite with a fire and about a dozen beers each to really sit down for about five or six hours and unpack some of this because yeah. But let's try and keep it podcast gestable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because one of the things I'm going to come back and unpack this ethics thing at the moment and. From you with your experiences um, coming out of Bosnia as a refugee, seeing direct actions of people that were either just or unjust and having that becoming a very definitive driver of your character and your next career path in life. Like I honestly joined the military because I wanted a job that was purposeful, that was intentful and where I was a contributor doing the right thing. And one of the things I'm always very passionate about talking about veteran entrepreneurship in particular is that you should choose a veteran business because the people behind that business are going to act with integrity and, you know, commitment, and they're actually going to do the right thing for you. But I'm always confused with this oxymoron between us being professional military officers or or me in a former life and you in a current life and this balance between the things that we believe and the reasons why we act versus how we act, because ultimately mm-hmm. one of the things we need to do to win in warfare is to deceive 
and feint and manipulate and ultimately kill. Now, when we look at military people, we, we sort of say, well, we, we have these high values and ethics, but in business, we sort of think, well, business is a bit more dubious and unethical, but in military, we just go so much further. Can mm. you just unpack some of your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. I mean, I guess going to the first point of why people join, I mean, you know, in my instance, it absolutely was driven by that kind of um, a moral dimension of, uh, you know, trying to help those who couldn't help themselves, right? So that's that, that was the reason I joined. Uh, and the reason I was able to join intelligence and do human intelligence uh, was ultimately, again, because I believe or believed at least to an extent that, you know, what we stood for as a military, what the Australian Defence Force stands for as a military, what the Australian nation stands for as a nation uh, is broadly right, righteous, good. Um, and therefore, our intentions and the wars that we've deployed to ultimately, at least at, at an individual level, were motivated by, you know, good intentions, uh, which is how you can then, of course, allow yourself to do certain things that in the everyday life would be seen as immoral or unethical. And this is where we need to draw a distinction between war and everyday life. War exists as something out there. War exists and war is understood by people, by nations, by leaders as an, as an anomaly, right? It is an anomaly to everyday life, to our other social norms, right? Which is why we can accept that in war, in fact, we have laws that will allow soldiers to do things that would otherwise in day-to-day -day life be seen as unethical, but to do it in war, in fact, be forced to do it, i.e. kill or be killed, right? Mm. Which if you were, you know, as, as, as a banal example, if, uh, you know, if you're walking, uh, walked outside your house and just uh, shot someone in the street, chances are you'll end up in jail. But, uh, you know, if you did that uh, walking through uh, uh, somewhere in, 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 a, in a part of Afghanistan uh, and you saw a, a, a somebody about to kill you and did that, well, you'd be praised for it even. Uh, so that's the, I guess that's the, that's where war stands outside of what is accepted as day-to-day -day life. And it's temporary. It's something that we go and do. And hopefully uh, it's, it's, it's short in duration, but ultimately all wars end. And war as a state of being ultimately is an anomaly to otherwise a peaceful existence, coexistence, despite the fact that we consistently seem to be this continuously some sort of a war. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that's why the military ethics as as a field is so critically important because you're sanctioning the use of violence and killing on behalf of the state, right? So, you know, the old adage that it's war is an extension of politics, right? It's, it's for some political end state, for some policy end states that you're pursuing a war or violence. Uh, and, through, you know, and, and because of that, because you're already stepping outside of what is the norm, or what is commonly acceptable in our societies, domestically, there is a greater risk of moral degradation, of moral drift, of ethics becoming, you know, discarded for tactical, operational, strategical gains. Uh, and that's, you know, not me saying that about our, our military, but I'm saying that about every military, right? Transgressions occur, have occurred in every war, war crimes have occurred in every single war, and will continue to occur in every single war because war in itself is not the normal state of being, uh, which is why people can do the most extraordinary things in war. I think that's a really important point. And I, uh, I like your term of the you say anomaly, and it's, it is a short-term shift from the normal, but it takes a certain kind of character or person to have that sense of integrity and purpose and character in the normal to be able to go and do some of those things in the abnormal situation and, and hopefully return and, and to make those decisions in the abnormal setting with the best balance, with the best mm. purpose, with the best sense of, you know, doing the right thing here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Look, I, I think this is why the purpose matters, right? This is why the reason yeah. we go to war matters, right? And this is why, you know, this is something I explore in my own podcast uh, through various thinkers, uh, why, at least anecdotally, I, I strongly believe that uh, our 
uh, spike in, in moral injury, PTSD, et cetera, uh, amongst the veteran communities is partially because the purpose of the wars we have fought over the past 20 years has been somewhat diluted, has been questioned. Uh, certainly in the cases of Iraq uh, has certainly been uh, put under the microscope and, uh, you know, we've been left wanting. Uh, Afghanistan, the way we left, that certainly had a significant, you know, impact on uh, those who've been uh, as to why, what for, uh, you know, all of these kind of uh, decisions made by the political elite, uh, political elite uh, but ultimately it's, uh, you know, the soldiers on the ground who have to contextualise those reasons uh, for going and live and breathe it, right? Live and breathe it. And hopefully you can live with what you've done or what you haven't, or what you haven't done in many instances. Can I just, um, <clears throat> can I just get your thoughts as both of us have, um, you know, served in Afghanistan. Um, can I just get your thoughts on the initial purpose of that campaign? And did that really align or set ourselves up for success for the eventual you know, way that campaign disintegrated? Mm, and the, mm, and mm. what you bring back to some of these, this sense of you now moral injuries with our soldiers nowadays. Mm, mm. I mean, I think uh, at least what I'm able to capture from the people that I've interviewed uh, over the last two and a half years in Afghanistan has obviously been uh, in my focus quite often. You know, the, the, the initial reasons were understandable. Uh, of course, you know, going to pursue a particular uh, uh, threat group, you know, Al Qaeda. Uh, yeah, no, no problem with that morally and ethically. And I think anybody that went in those first couple of years uh, went so without any moral questions, right? Uh, yeah. Despite the fact that it was rather emotional, it was revenge, but it was also, uh, to use military jargon, prosecuting a legitimate target, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what it shifted to is regime change. And that's, uh, that's where the ethical piece really comes into it. I mean, it was that was that a legitimate use of military might, military power, military you know, force uh, to inst institute a regime change well, with not as much as uh, a, a deliberate, well-developed long-term plan where all the parties uh, had a stake uh, in that plan? Uh, and I've spoken to many a general, uh, some publicly, uh, who've, you know, openly discussed that Australia didn't have a seat at the table in, you know, in the strategy definition of, uh, of uh, well, certainly Afghanistan, uh, but even Iraq. Uh, and that for us is, a, at least for me, ethically is a problem, right? If we're mm. putting soldiers into harm's way and as, a, as somebody who was a civilian in war, putting non-combatants at the receiving end of our own munitions, who will ultimately count as collateral damage because, you know, we're fully justified, uh, you know, under various doctrines to, you know, ultimately kill them if it's for a greater good, quote unquote. Um, well, it's for them. You know, it's also about them. Uh, it really matters for them uh, because we'll come back home. We'll come back to our functioning society, to our, you know, lovely beaches and, you know, a set of traffic lights where everybody stops uh, you know, and when a police officer pulls you over, everybody pulls pulls over, etc. The ordered society and social norms that we live by, uh, but those people um, will not, right? They will, if they live, uh, will return to a place that is totally disrupted. Um, you know, not just their physical infrastructure, but their social connections, the the social networks that had existed, will be completely disrupted, severed. Uh, and that takes generations uh, to heal. So for that reason alone, I think the purpose one goes, uh, you know, to to a to a particular deployment matters. Uh, and I think as it now, as as we kind of look backwards, uh, there's certainly some, at least in my in my view, there's some room for improvement uh, as to how we um, how we go to war. Which I know is not really what the podcast is about. It's about how we relate this to business. But I think we can really draw tenuous links to business. Um, you know. Firstly, let's face it, let's not over-rely on uh, the, the superiority of the military mindset. You know, we have come, and this is, again, my opinion, we have become too accustomed to overusing the military and relying on the military mindset. Uh, but as, uh, as Dave Kilcullen, uh, who undoubtedly most in your audience will be familiar with, said in a recent interview, we haven't won a war since World War II, right? So for all our... Um, Nobility. Praising. Yeah, that's right. Right. So at some point we need to stop and think and, and, and go, okay, how we, are we, are we over, are we relying too much, you know, and, and are we becoming 
you know, the 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 idiom, right? That if you, you know, if all you got a hammer, all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Are we falling for that trap, right? Yeah. The unstilling effect, right? So and, it, and is our pious self-righteousness actually leading to the end states that we want to get to? And, you know, exactly. Exactly. It's one of the things, um, one of the things I'd, you know, like saying your point there is that, you know, in terms of collateral damage, you know, and every life is precious, you no, know, whether it's like it's mine's very precious to me. And, and, you know, like, and when you have, whether you're a combatant or not, you know, the, mm-hmm. the long-term consequences mm-hmm. of, you know, what happens in the inverted commas enemy's yeah. family, even though yeah. we're both doing our thing for yeah, what we believe. That's in. right. Everybody thinks they're the good guy, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, like yeah. when we've got, you know, uh, in world war one, we've got Christians on one side of the trench planned praying to the same God as the English on the other side of the yeah. trench. It's uh, um, I just, now I'm going to spin us around a bit. So first of all, I, coming back to the point about Afghanistan and my own personal uh, experience was, I remember being challenged by people about the army and the war, you know, prior to my deployment and I always had this thing, you know, like about, Hey, girls can go to schools now and we're building roads. And, you know, like we were able to cling onto these, uh, these physical and capability things that we were doing for a change in the country. Mm, 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 and I've mm. got to say, like um, seeing those iconic scenes of, you know, our generations, uh, Huey helicopters are being pushed off the back where, mm. you know, these tragic scenes of these Afghanis falling off the, the wheel mm. bays yeah. of C-17s yeah. and yeah. reflecting on my experience of what, was it right or not? It's actually, it's actually um, going to lead me into my next point. And I believe it was Machiavelli who said it, but the ends justify the means. And this is where I want to tie this thing in, into business and why it's so important to look at um, military and ethics and business as separate things. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to mm-hmm. draw you to your point, anomaly versus life as normal. Mm. In business, this is life as normal. These are the mm. things that we, this is the things that we do act behave say every single day yeah let's let's talk about um the ends justify the means and can you just as a military ethicist how do you manage this in your profession yeah see that's a that's a really interesting one i mean it's and again something that i've tried to wrestle with the, the idea of there's a risk out there right and 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 humor me here and and please you know challenge me if you if you disagree but there is a there is a broadly broadly let's call it militarization of everything, right? Just think about the Australian context. The last couple of years, we've had a two-star general heading up just about everything, whether it's a COVID task force, vaccinations, like everything, right? Vaccinations, door knocks, yeah. right? We had, I mean, we had special forces soldiers doing door knocks, right, to make sure that people are vaccinated. Um, bushfire assist, flood assist. Now I'm not I'm not disputing the fact that we should be there as a you know force of last resort, which is what the strategic review now says, right? But there's been a tendency to throw the military at just about any problem that you know is faced by the government, uh, and this is not a way to 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 shame the government or accuse the government. It's understandable why, because as military people, what are we trained in, right? Now I'm just going to draw back to our our. Uh, all the, the, the values that we were brought up with, right? Courage, initiative, teamwork, as much as I know they've changed now, but I just don't want to confuse the point that I'm trying to make, right? Initiative is probably the, you know, the biggest one that stands out in my mind as to what we were trained uh, as young officers joining the Australian military. Everything was about, you know, make a decision, just go, make a decision, do something, don't stand there and freeze. Uh, and this is something that I've uh, recognized as an inherent value uh, in military service that I've been able to take outside and, and recognize that in particular as a real standout trait uh, that we bring to the party. Mm. Now that in, in a, you know, you know, it, it therefore makes sense why the government, besides the fact that it's a free, ultimately a free resource, right? One that you're already paying for uh, that you can throw at just about any problem, but you know that you're going to get a solution because that's what these people are trained to do. So therefore we have a solution for, you know, COVID task force for flood assist, for bushfire assist, uh, and despite the fact that we're exhausting quite precious resources that are designed and ultimately exist for a completely different uh, end state. But more to the point, we're also seeing a promulgation of military jargon, military, well, even the name of your podcast, right? And this is not to say that this is like, I'm not trying to hit your podcast, but, but the military mindset is permeating through business everywhere right everywhere you look 
but there's an inherent risk that one needs to be aware that comes down that comes with that if you militarize everything then things start to look like war and if you start using terminology like targets prosecuting etc which is terminology that is used in the military context to desensitize the warfighter to the act of killing uh, taking a human life right we're calling him a target or an objective for a reason the language desensitizes you progressively over time to the fact that you are taking someone's father someone's son you know someone's husband you know that you're taking their life or that you know collateral damage in itself that you're deleting an entire family potentially right these are serious issues that militaries have to contend with and that's part of what military ethics tries to do is to give us a little bit of an increased awareness and an edge as to how we think about the application of lethal force but when you take that into the business context just like you said before right ends justify the means if you start thinking that you know you're in a war you know that you are in an operation center you know that this is you know and you you see the language all the time you know you're in the trenches uh yeah there's this kind of idea of battle as business there's a risk and i'm not saying this happens everywhere but there's a risk that you start really you know it becomes about killing the opposition yeah Right, which is that kind of, uh, and that allows you then slowly over time, progressively to start using methods and ways uh, to achieve that end state that may otherwise not be, well, legal. And that's easy. Legal is easy, but there will be. Legal doesn't mean right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. But that's an easy kind of box. Okay. Is this legal? Yes. Tick. Cool. But is it ethical or unethical? And it becomes blurry once you start using language that is all about war you know, victory at all costs. Uh, it's me against them. Whereas as you know, much better than I do, right? In business, competition is healthy, right? And, and, and it's about improving so that the others improve, so the you improve, so the industry improves. And we, we all know the dangers of a monopoly, right? When all competition has been killed, right? It's funny. Um, it, it, I really, really appreciating the way you say that because, you know, too often in sports, you know, we talk about, you know, combat and that, you know, in exactly. sports, you know, it's so far from someone like, and again, I'm, I, I almost have to justify this every time. Individual experiences vary in the army and I'm not yes, a combat. Yes. And, same, and same. I, I yeah. say that particularly yeah. out of respect to the, to the men, men and women that are in those roles mm-hmm, and that have mm-hmm. faced those, those challenges. Mm-hmm. But in business, it is always the right thing to do, to do the right thing. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and this is where, you know, I sort of see three levels of uh, available intelligence, you know, to summarize them really cleanly um, about how we look at our competition. And, and just one thing about competition, some of the best relationships we've had have been with uh, competitors who we now turn into collaborators. Yes, because. Exactly. If yeah. you're actually so competitive with someone that that's such a finite, small view of the world, that in fact, you're good at what you do because you do it. They might be in the same space, but how big is the pie you're looking at? Exactly. You know, yeah. So quite often with our, with our competitors slash collaborators, um, what are the opportunities there? So for example, in our business, we've just created a product, which is called the HubSpot Virtual Assistant Academy. Mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. can provide trained talent to our competitors so they can do a great job yeah. with their clients. Yes. Yeah. So there's actually opportunities here when we look at this. They're not the exactly. enemy. That's right. They're not the that's enemy. Right. Yeah. You know, they're, exactly. They're, but, they're business yeah. people. But when so you start, is- yeah, exactly. But that's but but when you infuse the and this, we've seen this time and time again, the uh com- what competitiveness or over over competitiveness has done to businesses, you know, starting most prominently from the global financial crisis in 2008, you know, some of the big companies that failed was because of the focus on targets only, right? So it's all yeah. about, you know, it's all about victory, right? It's all about, you know, uh, uh, getting out there and getting it done, which is, again, you know, that's what, when it's a matter of life and death, sure. When it's a matter of life and death of your nation, sure. When it's a matter of life and death of your social group, your family, Sure. But business needs to be removed, I think, or needs to be at least toned down. This is not to say that there aren't, that there aren't useful skills. I mean, in intelligence, obviously, business intelligence and, and the entire intelligence cycle as a principle is a hugely beneficial, uh, uh, you know, it's hugely beneficial knowledge to bring into a business. And, and I know from my own partner, she, she, you know, we were in Sweden uh, for a couple of years, as you, as you know, 
and she was consulting for a company and uh, 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 and being contracted out to analyze the workings of another company. Uh, and you know, having spent some time in that other company now, she basically did a uh, center of gravity analysis, center of gravity construct analysis, right? Analyzing, you know, their critical capabilities, uh, critical requirements, critical vulnerabilities, etc. Presented that to the uh, CEO of the company, and he just, you know, bought her outright. Like he just went, "Yep, cool, you're coming on board now. You're going to work for me now. I'm going to, you know, pay you out from the other company because this is something that I've never seen before, and it makes so much sense uh, because I can now." look at what the weaknesses of my competitors are and I can account for those and beat them. Yeah. Fantastic insight, but you need to couch it in such a way that it's not about, you know, you're not killing people and you need to remove the language that might somehow imply that this is a war of survival, right? Which is, yeah. which is I feel like permeating more and more in that kind of business speak. I want to work hard. I want to win. I want to be successful, um, but there's ways that we can do that, right? And I've created a little sort of 3S mm. framework on mm. a very simple guide to uh, what's right and what's wrong here. So yep. strip, steal, right. sabotage, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way I mm -hmm. look at it. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to look at how the military does intelligence and investigates, you know, um, competitor analysis to give yourself every advantage, then there's nothing wrong with stripping everything that's out there in the public forum. Yeah. Yeah. If I guarantee you that Qantas knows what Jetstar's price, oh, sorry, Virgin's yeah. flight fares are from, yeah. you know, Sydney, Sydney yeah. to Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime your competitors um, put stuff out in the open source world, strip it, get mm -hmm. as much as you can because it's been released with free spirit. And you should be taking as much of that information as you can to be able to make your decisions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I've got no problems with strip. Okay, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. agreed. It's yep. just a good straight intelligence. But then we've got a threshold underneath, which is steel. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we've spoken about this little one before. The steel bit is where I have to actually take on that persona of manipulation or fraud in somehow. Mm -hmm. Is is it actually okay for me to lie to get information? or to take stuff that is protected or guarded. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. is it legal? Probably, maybe, absolutely. You know, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong mm -hmm. with me pretending to be someone and lying in a phone call to, mm -hmm. to get information out of my... That's nothing... There's nothing legally mm -hmm. wrong with mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But I think as soon as we take these steps and we cross this um, integrity threshold, Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now we're now we're creeping down the wrong path. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and you know, sabotage uh, obviously you know goes without saying. That's the ultimate. Um, you know, but, th but these are again, these are uh, in war. All of these are fine, right? Because the yeah. stakes in war and business are vastly different. Uh, and when the two are blended and merged, you know, so does blur the line between you know what is war and business. Uh, and, you know, it's therefore far easier for people to justify stealing. Oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just pretending to be someone I'm not. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I'm big. I'm not breaking a deal. the law. I'm not breaking the law. That's right. I'm not doing right? it illegal. And it's a slippery slope, right? It's a, it's this kind of, um, you know, and, and again, this is something we see in war and we see in business, right? When behavior, uh, is normalized. That's when it starts degrading even further. Uh, and when you're, when you can disguise certain activities and behaviors through language that kind of neuter its emotional loading, uh, you know, like targeting. I'm just, I'm just targeting the, the competitors, right? That could mean anything. What that actual word "target" means? Exactly, right? It actually means look at through a scope or yes. aim a weapon at it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, yep. I think this word, this language, is so super important because, again, it creates a desensitization mm. um, to the effects. Yeah. And like, I just short-term win versus mm. uh, long-term gain. I just don't see. Now, there's too many examples of where it's infused into a company's culture. Yeah. The walls come crashing down sooner or later. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
And, and that's my only warning with it. I mean, that's it from a kind of, again, ethical perspective. I mean, it's something that I'm, you know, and, and you know, you refer to me as a military ethicist. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a military ethicist in, it, uh, you know, in his infancy, I guess. But, um, you know, just the research that I'm looking at is I'm looking at the role on the environment, uh, how the environment can de- degrade our moral compass. Um, you know, obviously, for the military context, it's more on operations, but the same can be applied. Uh, and I've done and, and I've read a lot of research on, uh, you know, how easily uh, our moral compass uh, can be pulled in a different direction, right? Uh, and of course, incentives matter, right? The, the behavior that you incentivize is the behavior you're going to get. Uh, and if you're, again, we've seen this time and time again uh, through the failures of, 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 of many an organization, uh, ethical failures, when you're incentivizing certain actions like, you know, winning at any cost, that's what you're going to get. And when that's encouraged, that's what you're going to get. Uh, so setting those, you know, creating the conditions and the environment, business environment that is fierce, no question of that, competitive, 100%, you know, get out there and win. Yeah, no problem. But you do need to have certain guardrails uh, that, you know, that will shape what's acceptable behavior and what's not. Uh, and of course, you know, turning a blind eye to, you know, small deviations, well, that leads to greater deviations. Uh, and that's perhaps, uh, uh, you know, something that I guess the military is learning where the costs are much higher. Uh, but of course, the business world also needs to learn. And it's this um, constant deviation that is the, it, it, okay, there's that line you cross, but then it's the constant, as soon as you cross it, the line just starts creeping and creeping and creeping. And what was um, abnormal abhorrent or unusual before now it's all of like oh that, that's just that's okay it's just while we roll now and this line just continues to creep and creep and this yeah. is the challenge that soldiers have you know like the first time they go to operations there's things that they might do that are just mm. so foreign or just unheard of you know like mm. in our no, mm. in our normal society yeah. when in the anomaly of warfare they're doing things that are just no one you shouldn't be killing people in the normal society. It just shouldn't mm, happen. Mm, mm, Soldiers that mm. can be part of their daily daily activity, mm, but then mm, they mm. go to then they go to deployment two and three and four, mm. and constantly the things that they're challenged to do in the name of our country just keep mm. creeping and creeping. And and it's so hard for us, you know, for civilians to throw and cast judgment at people that have been in those experiences. But and again, coming back to your first point, this is the anomaly of warfare. This is not an excuse to take this kind of behavior into business. Mm, that's right. No. Okay. So obviously so the sabotage piece is just, is just not on, you know, like, mm, well, mm, yeah, mm. but even though that's, it's, it, I would suggest it is prevalent out there. And I was, yeah, talking, 100%. To someone, yeah. I was talking to someone quite recently and he was talking about um, in one of his first gigs, he was trying to sell mobile phones um, in another country c- competing with Nokia. And he mm, couldn't mm, compete because mm. they just had so many resources. So what yeah, he started yeah, doing yeah. was booking all of their uh, reps into places way out of town, you know, <laughs> doing fake appointments yeah. for them. So then all of a sudden, all the reps turning up, like basically intentionally sabotaging. But mm, ultimately, mm, that mm. company couldn't win or compete anyway because they had an inferior product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, it's this short-term versus long-term gain. Mm, and I mm. guess my, my other point on the steel bit is as a father of – two young boys, seven and four year old, that classic old verse, do unto others as they would have have done unto you. I think it is. Yeah. The behaviors that we do in business. What if I just take that from my competitor? Mm, mm, Are mm. we opening up, you know, the can of worms here? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really funny one, right? Because, uh, you know, and again, there's ample research supporting this, but um, you know, how, how are we able to segregate or, or, or compartmentalize what we do in, business or, or even in war uh, to how what we do at home, right? So, you know, you can be a perfectly reasonable father, mother, you know, who's teaching your children the right values about stealing, about, you know, looking after others, et cetera, but you could then go to work and be in a mercenary environment where this is completely normalized and okay, and therefore, you know, commit uh, in some instances, grave atrocities, right? I mean, we've all read about the, uh, the keepers of Auschwitz, right? Uh, you know, who'd, you know, uh, uh, exterminate thousands by day and then go home to their families and, you know, and sing Christmas carols, right. With their mm-hmm. sons and daughters and take lovely photographs, you know, next to Auschwitz. Um, and, and I mean, I can just give you an anecdote to this to where, where the environment uh, uh, shaped behavior 
right? When we're in Bosnia, when we're running the, as you alluded to the, the start, we opened the country's first CrossFit gym. Um, and, you know, setting that up, we set it up as a not-for-profit um, and, and running it was, was an adventure to say the least, right? In a, in a post-violent conflict nation like Bosnia. Uh, but, you know, as we were getting established and it was, it, it was going really well, uh, you know, when we, you know, the, the, the sport grew rapidly and our membership uh, base grew rapidly, but, I was then approached by somebody who I hold in very high esteem, uh, somebody who is otherwise a very moral person. Uh, I would never, and, and a, an extraordinarily hardworking person. And I mean, you know, 12-hour days, day in, day out, has his own company, et cetera. Uh, and approached me with an idea to, you know, submit uh, uh, proposals for EU funding uh, to use our gym to do, because it was, you know, in his words, it, in at the time, uh, to do female-only uh, gym classes. You know, they'll give us money to build an entire venue, a new venue, and he, he's got all the providers and all the repairers and all the, all the labor, uh, you know, all the trades, uh, access to all the trades that are, of course, going to give us a bill for four times the amount it actually costs to build it, right? So you charge the EU, I don't know if arguments say 10,000 euro, but it actually only costs you 4,000 euro, you make 6,000 euro. Now, the way he was explaining this to me, to him, it was completely, it wasn't even a, it's he didn't even money. skip a beat. He didn't even skip a Free beat. Free money. Exactly. It, but that's the parallel economy that exists there, right? Because of the way, uh, you know, the, the, the I guess, uh, uh, foreign influence has been, you know, exploited, et cetera, in Bosnia, uh, on multiple levels, right, for, for benefit of, of, of a multitude of people. But that's part of it, right? It's so normalized yes. that it, it's so much so that on the receiving end, you account for, you know, a bit of corruption or a bit of uh, money that's going to go off to the side. Yeah. That's part of it, right? And that's a, that started somewhere. That started with, oh, let's just up, the, up it a little bit. Let's just up it by 500 euro. You know, next thing you're talking, you know, six thousand euro, and you you have established an entire parallel economy, and that, and that yeah, really happens. Six, what's what's the difference between six and eight or eight and ten? And you know, it just creeps and creeps and creeps. And then the and then the then the sentence which we hear time and time again, oh, what's six thousand to them? You know, what's yeah. six thousand to you know EU? What's the six thousand to UK, US? And we see this in Australia with our own tax returns, right? It is a it is almost a rite of passage to pay as little tax as you can in Australia, right? Like as in oh, what's, you know, the government's not using it anyway. You justify it in a way that, oh, well, they're not, you know, the roads aren't fixed anyway. Yeah. Right? But then you go to a country like Sweden, which is where we, we lived for, 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 for nearly three years. It is, it, is, it is a source of national pride that everybody pays their tax. In fact, you don't even do a tax return. The government just charges you tax. And only if you have something legitimate to claim, you have to go, and, and do it all yourself. It's not a requirement. Everything's done for you. It's only if you, if you have some legitimate claims that you need to make, you then have to go and uh, submit a tax, tax return. Uh, and if you are in some way perceived as cheating on your tax, that is a source of uh, national shame or shaming within your peer group. Whereas for us, it's the opposite, right? It's, uh, you know, you got one up on the government kind of thing. This is where I think it's a, an important point probably to wrap up in, in. In terms of our own moral compass, we are products of our community mm-hmm. and we are so blessed to be in a community like Australia, a law-based community where there is some very clear you know, right and wrongs, mm-hmm. not just legal or not legals. You know, Other people in the world don't have this and particularly That's other right. countries where corruption is part of you know, our morality, our morality and their morality, um, it, it can't necessarily just pick us up and put us over there or, mm. or transfer mm-hmm. their beliefs or value sets into our cultural, our culture. But what we do have is the ability to make our own decisions for ourselves on what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming back um, and, you know, I encourage everyone, do the right thing in business. Look at your competitors potentially as collaborators and ultimately, you know, be the kind of person that, you know, that can, now the problem is, I guess I was going to say sleep well at night, but some people can sleep well at night doing the wrong thing anyway. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, mm-hmm. man, I've just appreciated the ability to share all I can. Well, I guess I'll summarize. All I can do is talk for myself. And mm-hmm. in my experience and the choices that I want to make is that I want to work hard. I want to win. I want to compete. 
I want to use the values that were infused into me as being a professional military officer at the time to do the right thing. And so far, so good. We're succeeding because of that, not in spite of that. Mm -hmm. So mate, can I leave you for a final word? And like, we have to, I'd love to come back and talk again because this just scratches the surface. Um, Tell us about the other work you're doing voices of war and how people can find you. Um, yeah, so main focus now is really, you know, starting my research, my researcher journey. Uh, but I do spend a fair bit of time uh, trying to put together this podcast. Uh, as I said, uh, it, it is uh, one of my gripes having experienced war as firstly as a child, then as a soldier, then I've been to Afghanistan, uh, to Iraq as a development worker, uh, and saw kind of the aftermath of uh, uh, that tragic war in Iraq and, and the disruption of that society. Uh, I'm convinced that we have a tendency to go to war far too easily, far too quickly. Uh, and it's something, again, I address on the pod. Uh, you know, even, uh, uh, you know, recently I had uh, a prominent Australian ambassador to just about every country in the Middle East um, uh, who spoke at length about how we went to Iraq as an example, right? How, in my view and in his view and in, many, in view of many others, it was an unethical thing for us to go to that war. Uh, but that's something that we don't address publicly. Uh, that's not something that's perhaps discussed in exclusive circles, but it's not in our public discourse, uh, uh, you know, amongst the population that ultimately, who we ultimately serve. Uh, and that's what the pod is aimed to do, is to try to pass between these very simple kind of highly moralistic discussions on war yes we're going because we're fighting for freedom and democracy right that's the standard throwaway well what's below that and you know is that sufficient uh, a slogan to motivate uh, people to go and kill others um, so yeah people can find the pod on uh, you know the voices of war.com of course it's on all uh, you know regular podcatchers etc um, but yeah that's uh, that's yeah. what i uh, kind of spend my time doing mate we'll throw it in the show notes as well thanks for sharing your time today um yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really been an eye opener for me. Again, um, you know, talking about some of these, you know, points are really important, and ultimately will drive um, your success in your legacy, not just your success, but your legacy, which I think yeah. is really important. Um, thanks again, Maz, Military Mindset for podcast. My name's Pete Liston. 